But generally, the problem is the simplest questions require the most complex answers. Welcome, Welcome. from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 26th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 23rd of February, 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show is sponsored by David B., who is practically a subscriber at this stage. Speaking of subscribers, it's about time I gave another shout-out to Precious J, Column F, Kurt J, Jeffrey S, Jason L, Ambrose A, and Jarek McCage. Your continued support is very much appreciated. To join this illustrious grouping, just click on the donate button on the podcast website. Today, we welcome back Professor Andrew Kleiman to the show, where we discuss Marx's value theory, his book Reclaiming Marx's Capital, where he tries to dispel some of the myths surrounding Marx's theories, and the tendential fall in the rate of profit. Before we jump in, I think a quick recap on the three types of value that Marx talks about is needed. First, use value. This is the usefulness of a commodity. For example, I bought a hat to keep my head warm. Keeping my head warm is the use value. Exchange value. The price in money I paid for the hat. And value. The amount of labour time that went into making the hat. Normally, the exchange value, or the price, should be fairly closely linked to the amount of labour time included in a commodity. Now that we have all that out of the way, we join the conversation as Professor Kleiman is giving us a crash course on value theory. Well, first of all, Marx is dealing specifically with a society that produces what he calls commodities, and especially a capitalist society, which is the only one in which commodity production is the predominant form of production. And commodity isn't just the thing that is produced and useful, it also has value. As Marx uses the term generally to be a commodity, it has to be produced in order to obtain value. So the goal of production is the production of value, not just the production of something either uh, useful for, for oneself or useful for s- someone else. The point is to expand value. Uh, and especially in capitalism, what we have is then a whole system in which the goal, as instantiated in the behavior of all kinds of individual capitalists, is to expand value as much as possible. And that is generally thought of as, you know, making as much money as possible or, or profit maximization. What, what is value? Value is abstract wealth. What is abstract wealth? Well, you know, you can drive a car, uh, you can live in a house. Those are concrete forms of, of wealth. But if you take away every useful character of the wealth and just think of more and more wealth being more and more wealthy, that is the expansion of value in the abstract because it's what's really involved here is the purpose. 
The, the, the point is to get richer, not to, you know, have a house and have a car, but to amass ever more quantities of wealth in the abstract without regard to the concrete purpose of that. So the expansion of abstract wealth or value does dominate capitalism. It's not that the, the, the rich don't want to be rich, but, you know, if you're just producing in order to be rich and you eat up all your, your profits, so to speak, your, your business won't be expanding. And then the ones that do expand will, will take you over. So the, the capitalists that remain are the ones who uh, lock themselves into and subject themselves to the system of production for production's sake, not for use, so to speak, accumulation for, for accumulation's sake, accumulation of abstract wealth. So to Marx, labor was the source of all value. This was the bedrock of classical economics at the time. Uh, yes. Uh, so he took that over, but he took it over critically because there were problems with the, the pre-existing theory and he, he tried to solve uh, some of the logical problems and such. And what were the problems that existed when Mark took them over? Oh, well, the key one is what has later been called the transformation problem. And the form in which it was originally posed was mostly in, uh, as follows. You have two commodities that take the, the same amount of labor to produce. One is just like a loaf of bread, but the, the second commodity is wine. And wine, to be wine, needs to age, needs to ferment. So it's in the process of production longer, even without any labor. And therefore what happens is, and this was acknowledged as a fact, that you know, a, a bottle of wine and a loaf of bread that require the same amount of labor to be produced will not have the same price. The wine will have a higher price. And basically what that higher price is, is it includes interest to the wine producing capitalist for committing their capital for a longer period of time. Their investment in wine production is out there longer than the investment of the bread producer. So the, the two things will not have the same price, even though they require the same amount of labor. And so how did Marx solve this problem? Marx solved it by very clearly and definitively differentiating between the value of a commodity and the price of the commodity. On the one hand, that was part of what he did. Second of all, I mean, you, can, you could just differentiate between the two and then you would have a theory of value that has nothing to do with price. But... On the one hand, he very clearly differentiates between the value and the price. On the other hand, he argues that in the economy as a whole, the sum of prices equals the sum of values. So if we think about like the output of an entire country, let's say, the, the, the output of the, the United Kingdom in, in terms of pounds, if you add up all the prices in, in, in the United Kingdom and you add up all the values produced in the United Kingdom in money terms, they come out to the same. That's a little bit rough, but that's the basic idea. If we look to, say, a factory system or a building site where people are working, performing repetitive tasks, it's pretty easy to see where the insight has great validity. But maybe when we get to more, say, esoteric disciplines of creation, for example, how would we estimate the value of Marx writing Das Kapital itself? What value would this have? Well, none. 
he did not produce it for the purpose of being exchanged. It was not an act of value creation in the sense that we were talking about before. So really, to, to be a commodity, something has to be produced for the, the purpose of, of being exchanged. And if it's not a commodity, it, it doesn't have value. And Marx was, you know, he, he flagged cases like this. I think the, the person he mentioned was Milton, John Milton. He says, you know, it was not productive labor that Milton was engaged in. Paradise Lost was uh, an expression of, of his individuality or personhood or something like that. So Marx made a distinction between that and a schoolmaster who pumps knowledge into his uh, students' heads instead of like a factory worker who makes sausages and pumps sausage into casings. His point was the, the school teacher who's pumping the knowledge into the heads, like the factory worker is, is pumping sausage into casings, they're alike. And the schoolmaster is unlike John Milton. So it's not the physical nature of the activity that's at issue in the sense, but it's, it's really, it goes back to the purpose. So is it in some sense that this form of labor is somewhat excluded from this theory or thought maybe to be insubstantial? Uh, it, 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 it occurs a lot, and it, it's rather that it's excluded. The value theory deals only with commodity production, and really it works really only with generalized commodity production wherein the commodity is the, the dominant form of wealth. And in particular, it's not just that something is a commodity because it's exchanged. Uh, in the sense being used by, by Marx, it has to be produced for the purpose of being exchanged. And that's where you get the connection between the exchange system and production. And once you've got production, you've got labor. So that's why there is an intrinsic connection between the quantity of labor and the amount of value that the thing has. But look, labor as such, in the simplest way, is, is human activity. So I'm performing labor right now, you're performing labor right now, but there's a real difference between you playing basketball and, I don't know, Michael Jordan or whoever playing basketball. Similarly then, so what about the value then of, say, Mona Lisa? How do we think of value of, say, an artistic creation, one that's probably is made as a commodity? How do we value that with respect to the labor that goes in? Without dealing exactly with Mona Lisa, let me say the, the following. The amount of value that something has, according to the theory, is determined by the amount of labor needed to reproduce it, okay? The amount of labor needed to reproduce it rather than the amount of labor that it actually took to produce it. And there, there's a difference in, in quite a number of different cases. But one case is, you know, a, a work of art that is one of a kind is not reproducible. I mean, obviously you can fake a Mona Lisa or make a print of a Mona Lisa, but it's not the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa is one of a kind, so in that sense, it has no value, yet it commands a price. Now, that price is a monopoly price. And how is a monopoly price determined basically, well, the degree of monopoly? And here it's, you know, whoever owns the Mona Lisa, that's it. Uh, they've got a monopoly on that. And the other factor is the demand for the thing. So that's not contrary to Marx's theory 
that's part of Marx's theory. It, it definitely recognizes monopoly price, and it definitely recognizes, in the case of monopoly price and many other prices, the role that demand plays in the determination of the amount of value. In amongst all of this, then, one thing that sits here, I think, which ironically to me didn't play that much of a, of a role in volume one of Das Capital, is the innovation of production under a capitalist system. As in, how do we value the act of the creation of the new production process? Marx tends to say that we see these new production processes coming in, but it doesn't really tie it so much that act itself to value. Right. I mean, I think you're talking about what would be just in general research and development. I, I think if you just apply the same principle, and I think you would have to apply the same principle, that activity does not have value. Let's take, let's take something like software, which I don't know if it's exactly what you're talking about, but it, I think you, you could extend it to what you're talking about. There could be a tremendous amount of labor, and there is a tremendous amount of labor in developing new software. And so the first piece of that software, it looks like it should have a high value. However, keep in mind that what is meant by value in the theory, it's, it's, it's really a definition of what's being talked about, is the value said to be determined by the amount of labor needed to reproduce it. The amount of labor needed to reproduce software, no matter how long and how much labor it took to develop the prototype, so to speak, the labor of reproduction is minimal. So software has almost no value. We, we can basically roughly say software has a zero value. And then what we have to understand is any software that commands a price, it's purely a monopoly price. And this is why we see these days such fierce fights over intellectual property rights, because it's only these intellectual property rights that allow the software to command prices. You know, you got the Napster case, you have all kinds of cases, software, digitized music, whatever it might be. It's reproducible at almost no cost. And therefore, if it could be reproduced freely, the price would sink down really to zero. So the fact that the price does not sink down to zero, which is the value, is secured only by means of monopoly right. A major part of the theory is that work that is performed only has value if it's producing goods that the society has a desire or a need for. So, for example, if I make a car with no doors or windows, the labor will have been wasted because nobody wants such a thing. Now, this collection of products that society needs or wants is not static. How does Marx understand how this group of products changes and interacts with the labor theory of value? Well, all we have to do in the middle of the expression that the value is determined by the amount of labor needed to reproduce the thing is to add the word currently. It's determined by the amount of labor currently needed to reproduce the thing. So the value of an item, you know, a certain kind of article continually changes. Nowadays, your carriages for your, for your horses, I mean, there's still a few around, but I mean, that used to be a, a dominant form of transportation. Now it is no longer. The point I'm trying to get at there is, how do we understand how the process of new products and new desires come into this overall societal need? Say we look to, to marketing. Marketeers have the ability to create wants in a society. One example I'm ashamed to say I was actually involved with was trying to create a market for fancy sauces, specifically for cat food. 
Now, if this marketing creates a desire for a new market, say the cat food sauce, and these products now sell and have value and create a profit for the capitalist, how do we evaluate the value? I know this is perhaps using the wrong terminology in a Marxist sense. How do we evaluate the value of the marketeering effort to try and get this new product accepted? It has no value in the same sense. So you, you are perhaps using it in a different sense. In, in a sense, it's, it's the creation of something original, just as you were talking about before. That creation of something original is, is not what the theory deals with. It deals with the cost of reproducing a thing and the relationship between the cost of reproducing the thing and the price that, that it has. So however much thought and whatever societal changes by creating a market for, for cat food, that's one issue. The other issue is once you've got sauce for cat food as a commodity, how much labor does it take to produce it and what effect does that have on the price of uh, saucy cat food? I mean, that really is the same question as the software or the creation of new technology in, in general. So from my point of view, I would see that the vast majority of labor and products are created are created under this capitalist system of value production. And that if there are small little things on the side, it's really essentially external to the understanding of the theory itself. Yeah, but, but the thing is that even the, the, the products that are created under the system, the original act of creation, the development of a prototype, the research that goes into it is not what the value theory is meant to deal with. It's meant to deal with the cost of reproducing similar items of this kind. So there are certain limitations that are built into the theory, and that's important because it's got a much more narrow focus than a lot of people realize. And so they look at things with a different concept of value in mind, explicitly or implicitly, and they say, this can't deal with them successfully. Well, it can't deal with them successfully because it's not meant to deal with them successfully. It's looking at something else. So the fact that the theory does not apply to that does not refute the theory any more than the fact that the theory of special relativity won't help me shine my shoes is not a refutation of that theory either. It's just a, it's about something else. The outside wheels must spin faster than the wheels on the inside. They have a greater distance to travel in the same length of time. When a wagon turns a corner, the wheels can travel at different speeds because each one can turn freely on the axles. In the early automobiles, the rear wheels turned separately and only one wheel was connected to the engine. If two wheels are locked on an axle so that they are not free to turn separately, one or the other has to slide. So engineers had to find a way to connect both rear wheels to the engine without sliding and slipping on turns. The device which makes this possible is a part of the rear axle. It is called the differential because it can drive the rear wheels at different speeds. The differential looks complicated, but once we understand its principle, it is amazingly simple. 
Marx's e economics, which was so radical in its explanation of how a capitalist economy works, was the brunt of a concerted attack by economists of various persuasions over the years. The most important attack was the transformation problem, which had a pretty devastating effect on the field of Marxist economics. Now, I've just finished your book, Reclaiming Marx's Capital, which is really excellent. And as far as I can understand, it very much succeeds in its attempt to show that the transformation problem is really a misinterpretation of the theory and that your temporal single system interpretation, or TSSI for short, sorts out a lot of these problems. Now, before we get into this, I'd wonder if you'd first say a few words on what inconsistency means in general for a theory. Right. It's, it's, it's very simple. What any kind of theory in, in sciences or, or discipline like economics does is it begins with certain premises or assumptions. It's really a matter of logic. And from that, you derive or deduce certain conclusions. And then in a discipline such as physics, you go out and you, you, you try to test the conclusions or predictions of, of a theory uh, against the real world. And then if they match, all well and good, you keep with the theory. If not, there a lot of things need to or can be done. But you can rule a theory out. You can throw it away at the starting gate before you try to see how well it uh, explains or predicts what's going on in reality, just on the grounds of the logic. If the conclusions that are deduced from the premises are not deduced validly, are not done logically, then the theory is wrong. The conclusion could happen to be right, but the process of reasoning that gets you to that conclusion is wrong. So that's the guts of a theory, is moving from the premises to the conclusion. So we've got this, and we've got that, and we've got the other, and the conclusion is such and such. Well, the and then doesn't work in a case of an inconsistent theory. So it either has to be rejected or corrected. That is the tack that has, I would say, generally and probably not quite exclusively, but it's been the dominant form of attack uh, against Marx's value theory by its opponents. Uh, and I suspect that be is because on the grounds of the empirical strength of the theory, I mean, if you were just to, to, to match up the conclusions of, of the theory against the real world, it performs really, really well. So what are you going to attack it on? Well, you attack it on, on grounds of, of logic, and therefore you can disqualify it irrespective of how well it seems to explain and maybe in some cases predict events in the real world. Even though it seems to be able to explain them, it actually cannot be the case because the theory just doesn't add up. You're not moving in a logically sound way from the starting point to the conclusions, predictions, or whatever of the theory. Socrates was a man, and Socrates was a philosopher, therefore Socrates was mortal. The conclusion happens to be true, but the process of reasoning is, is garbage. The usual syllogism, it's a model for all syllogisms, is Socrates was a man, all men are mortal, therefore Socrates was mortal. That's a valid deduction, but you can still get the same conclusion Socrates was mortal from true premises, but an invalid process of deduction. So in the book, you deal a lot with how to interpret a work and how to compare different interpretations. What, what is the field of textual hermeneutics? 
Well, the term hermeneutics uh, means so many different things because it's been taken in many different directions. And I'm just using it in the simplest and most prosaic way. Hermeneutics deals with uh, interpretation. Now, there are different kinds of interpretation. And I'm saying we have to deal with, come to something like Marx's value theory and texts like Capital is what we call exegetical interpretation. This is very different from what's been called creative interpretation or exploitative interpretation. In the case of an exegetical interpretation, you are trying to get at the author's position in a case like of a theory. You know, how do we get right what the author was saying? That's not the only way to read a book. It's not the only legitimate way to read a book. You know, you could read Capital to develop your own thoughts. You could read Capital as inspiration for writing a play. None of those things in my mind are illegitimate. But when we're dealing with questions of internal inconsistency or consistency, we are dealing with questions of what did the author actually write? What is the meaning of what was written by the author? Not in the sense of what it means to me, but in some degree, the sense of what was intended or the functions that those words play in a theory. If you've got two interpretations, say your interpretation and somebody else's interpretation, uh, how do you propose going about deciding which of the two is more valid in some sense? Whichever makes sense of what the author is saying better. In some cases, we don't have enough information to make that decision, but that is the criterion in any case. The interpretation that is better is the one that better makes sense of the text. Now, now that's tricky because somebody could say, well, this makes sense to me. But again, it's not making sense to me. It's really producing coherence among different pieces of the text, making this, the text make sense as a whole. A previous guest we had on, Professor Gregory Chiden, had done some work in algorithmic information theory, which kind of deals with the ideas of how to think of theories in themselves. In some sense, science is the search for the smallest theory that can explain the most data and make predictions at the same time. Is there an analogy between this and your thoughts on how to interpret a work? Well, I think that what you're, you're, you're talking about, which is uh, sometimes called simplicity, is part of it. You know, you, everybody has interpretive controversies. You know, you're sitting in a pub and, and you have an interpretive controversy of some sort. And kind of anything can be explained away if you're creative enough. Why did the telephone ring? Well, there's a little gnome, you know, that's inside the telephone and it's actually, you know, chirping. And you, you take apart the phone and there's, you don't see a gnome. Well, these are invisible gnomes. Uh, you, can, you can keep doing that kind of thing forever. You can keep a theory or a claim from being falsified forever that way. And you can do that in the case of a text, just like uh, the gnome and the phone. But it's not simple. And because it's not simple, we're inclined to consider it not plausible. It, it looks like it's concocted. The ability to explain... To, to account for 
various aspects of the text or various you know phenomena in a simple way does recommend a theory as being plausible as a plausible way of accounting for what we what we do observe in, in other words to put it in the bluntest terms possible if you open up a phone and you don't see a gnome the simpler explanation is that there is no gnome rather than that the gnome is there and chirping but is invisible One of the major critics of Marx's value theory was Ladislaw Borkiewicz. Who was he and what was his impact on Marx's work? Well, he was writing about a century ago. He was a statistician and an economist, although I don't think he ever had a teaching position or anything like that. He was a devotee of Léon Valras, a very famous economist who developed general equilibrium theory. Borkevich basically criticized Marx from the vantage point of general equilibrium theory of Valras. So what he did was to subject Marx's account of how commodities' values and their prices of production or average prices are related. Marx gives an account of that, and, and, and Borkevich claims to prove that it's internally inconsistent in order, uh, I would say, more or less to try to show the supremacy of general equilibrium theory. So before we get into details, I'd like to give an example that can try to shine some light on the problem for the layperson. Let's say I buy some leather to make some shoes and it costs me £30 for the leather. Now, I'm a lazy type and I don't get around to making the shoes for a couple of weeks by which time the price of the letter has dropped now to £20. And so I start my sewing and stitching the shoes, which adds £5 of new value to the letter. And the next morning I go to the market to sell my shoes and I learn that the price of the letter in the meantime has just dropped £10. Now, what value do the shoes that I'm about to sell have? Well, according to Marx's theory, the fact that it cost you £30 originally is irrelevant. You know, the value of commodity depends on the amount of labor it currently takes to produce it or reproduce it, which is the, the amount of labor currently needed to you know, acquire the leather and, and, and so forth and so on, which is £20 and not 30 So it's uh, £20 is the monetary expression of a certain amount of labor. So the real debate goes into whether it's 20 pounds of leather, which was the price of the leather when you started to make the shoes, or whether it's the revalued value of leather at the time when the shoes are completed, which is 10 pounds. That's Borkevich's method, is to value everything simultaneously. I don't think that makes sense of, of Marx, and so what I think Marx says is that the value of the commodity includes the value of the inputs, their current value, not their original value, their current value at the moment when they enter into the process of production. And he, he says this uh, here, there, kind of everywhere. So why did Borkovich put forward this simultaneous valuation 
the value in the shoes at the £10 value of the leather? Well, I mean, in one sense, he did it because this is the way he thought. This is what he thought good economic method was. This is what he got from Leon Varas. He has a whole section in his critique of Marx. He basically says things in economics are determined mutually. They influence one another mutually. I guess meaning at the same time, it's not that they are sequential. It's not like you have a first step that then determines the second step that then determines the third step. But the thing that one really needs to understand about Borkevich is he wasn't just saying, I have a method and it's superior, and here I like my solution, I like my theory. He was saying that Marx's way of doing it is not proper because it is internally inconsistent. So what he does is he first argues that Marx's account of this value-price relationship is logically incoherent, uh, is self-contradictory, um, because it leads to a spurious breakdown of the economy. It's not like the economy would really break down, but that's what it would look like if you related prices and values in, in Marx's way. What was it about the economy that would break down? Well, the, the way Borkevich phrases it is he begins with what he calls the values of the inputs and then he says well but in marx's account the, the inputs are being bought at their values but the same commodities are being sold at prices that differ from values and he claimed that this difference between the one price or the value of the thing which it's bought as an input and the price at which it's bought as an output would lead to a breakdown of the economy because there would either be too much supply and not enough demand for some things or vice versa. So if the economy was able to reproduce itself on the same level, in other words, supply and demand of everything is the same and the economy is just basically flat, not growing, if that would work, if everything were to exchange at its value, that would not work when you have as he understood Marx, the inputs to production being priced at their value and the outputs being priced at prices that differ from value. That's what he claimed. I mean, it's not correct. We, we, we showed long, long ago, I mean, this was in the mid-1980s, that there is not the spurious breakdown of the economy created by Marx's solution. So Borkevich says he's going to correct it. And he corrects it along the lines of the simultaneous valuation, repricing things that were inputs at output prices. But you don't need to do that. There's nothing wrong in Marx's account that needs to be corrected. You might like it. You might not like it. You might have a, th a different theory, a different method. But there's no internal inconsistency of the kind that was alleged by, by Borkevich. This seems to be a very simple interpretation a very simple problem that has caused all this trouble. And it seems pretty clear when you think about it. It's hard to believe that this simple mistake has caused so much trouble. Well, yeah, it's caused an incredible amount of trouble. The really striking thing is that it reappears again and again in a variety of contexts and basically all of the alleged inconsistencies in the quantitative dimension of Marx's value theory all of them come from either wholly or in 
couple cases, just partly, but the, the simultaneous valuation is implicated in all of these alleged logical problems. You don't value things simultaneously. Those alleged logical problems simply disappear. The question that you raise is really a profound one. Since it is simple, why, why does this thing persist, the, the simultaneous valuation? Why didn't people see it? Well, there's a number of reasons for that, but let me just start with the, the major issue at the very beginning is Borkevich knew that he was not giving an interpretation of Marx's theory by doing this. He was what he called correcting Marx's theory, and he was saying that Marx's theory had to be corrected because it led to a spurious breakdown of the economy. The equations implied a breakdown of the economy, and there's no reason to think that the economy would break down, so there's something wrong with Marx's solution. So that's the first thing that one has to grapple with is this charge that you have to value things simultaneously or else you wind up with nonsense. And way back when, this was 1986, myself and, and somebody else, we, we resolved this. We showed that there was actually no spurious breakdown. So what that means is then there is no illogic in Marx's solution. The economy does not break down in some spurious fashion. And because that's the case, there's nothing illogical about Marx's solution. Borkevich did not say this is illogical because it's not simultaneously valued. He says it's illogical because it leads to spurious breakdown. And to solve this, we have to impose simultaneous valuation. But if there is no spurious breakdown, there is no illogic that's identified there in Marx's solution, so you don't need to correct it, and it, therefore you don't need to correct it by valuing inputs and outputs simultaneously. How much of this misunderstanding was due to the fetishization of economics at the time and still presently with a kind of equilibrium view that's not temporal in nature? How much? That, that, that's hard to say. Certainly, equilibrium thinking, equilibrium methodology, uh, the desire to be good economists, you know, for Marxists to ape the methods of mainstream economics, which are predominantly equilibrium methods, certainly that has contributed to the persistence of all of this nonsense. Was that what was going on in Borkevich's case? Well, economics hadn't become so much of a, you know, a discipline in the, in the modern sense where we have, you know, actual kind of like industries uh, in, in the universities and so forth. So I, I don't quite know what was driving him. I do think that he was thinking very definitely in an equilibrium fashion apart from this particular problem. He was trying to develop a whole system. And so he just wanted to, to, to trash this thing that Marx was doing as part of it, I guess as a way of showing that his own thinking was better. But I, I don't want to speculate all that much on, on the original motives behind anything because there, there are different motives in, in, in different cases. But, but certainly, I don't know how much, but to some extent, the persistence of this problem is definitely related to the desire to reformulate Marx in, in equilibrium terms. A lot of economics that was influenced by Marx after this essentially dropped value and went to say that there was only price. Is this true? Yes, and that predates the publication of Volume 3 of Capital. Even before Marx writes Capital, 
the whole tradition of classical political economy was seriously on the wane. I mean, the last major work in the tradition of classical political economy was John Stuart Mill's Principles in 1848. Marx publishes Volume 1 of Capital in 1867, the first edition. Uh, volume 3 comes out in, I think it's 1894. We're, we're dealing with, with almost a half century in which whatever economics was being done was not being done by and large in the classical tradition. Even before volume three comes out and get all these allegations about inconsistency and the meaninglessness of that particular solution. How is the TSSI interpretation being accepted amongst Marxists and others? Well, among the group that for sociological purposes, I'll call the Marxist economists, it's never been accepted because they had their own interpretations or models, corrections, alleged corrections, and so forth. To some extent, they have some students and followers, and they're out to promote their, I would say, revisions of Marx or theories that are at variance with Marx. And it's no problem, as far as I'm concerned, to have a different theory. What is really problematic from an ethical vantage point is to nonetheless lay claim to being the inheritor of Marx. So they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be new and original and differentiate themselves from Marx, partly because that's how you get ahead in academia by differentiating your product to some extent, and partly because they're, they're not dogmatists or whatever. So they want to be different from Marx, yet they want to claim to be the inheritors of Marx because of the enormous cachet that that has. So they want to have their cake and eat it too. And the only way you can do that is to say, you know, this does not work on its own terms. It's logically inconsistent, and so it therefore either has to be rejected or corrected, and what we're doing is is the correction or the preferred correction. So they've never accepted it, although I, I show in the book that, you know, if you read carefully, there is an implicit acknowledgement that the TSSI does remove the appearance of inconsistency and that the inconsistencies that are alleged are no longer present when Marx is interpreted in accordance with the TSSI. And then we come back to the point that you made earlier, which is all important. What then are the criteria to decide among interpretations, exegetical interpretations of the nature we're talking about? And there we have basically zero engagement of that issue. They will not discuss that issue. Basically, what we're getting uh, implicitly is, well, you know, I'll, I'll choose whatever goddamn interpretation I want, you know, thank you, and my interpretation is best according to my criteria, which are generally never any criteria of actual interpretive adequacy in the, in the sense of an exegetical interpretation. I think it was Max Planck, I'm not sure, the physicist who said that sometimes science progresses one funeral at a time. Do you think that perhaps the young Marxists that come up and read this will take it on board more likely than, say, existing Marxists with their own ideas? He said uh, a, new, a, a new theory doesn't succeed because it convinces its opponents, but because they gradually die off and a new generation comes along that's familiar with it. <laughs> now, I think that that's part of what's going on, but... I, I think that there are just too many structural problems in academia, the functional role that academia performs within capitalist society, the functional role that Marxian economics 
used in a d- disciplinary sense. I'm not a Marxian economist. I, I'm, a, I'm an opponent of the Marxian economists, if you understand what I'm saying. There are tremendous barriers to new people coming along and being able to pursue the critique of political economy in the tradition founded by Marx with the value theory that's understood in a manner that renders it internally consistent. That's not considered acceptable. I know people who have tried to write dissertations on this topic. They have not been able to do so. And it gets thwarted in a variety of ways. So what I've said needs to be done, and not only because of this problem, but just because of the corruption of academia and it is not a home for real Marxian thought in the tradition of Marx. You know, Marx was was not in academia either, Uh, though there was good academia in his time. I mean, it was was flourishing. It it had no want or, or need for him. What we need to do is establish what I call intellectual autonomous zones. There needs to be real rigorous thought and research in the tradition of Marx, but it's got to be outside of academia. But it it also can't be done by people in, in their spare time. The issues are too difficult. You do need rigor. You do need the time. So there's got to be resources committed to the end until people who have some money or groups that have some money see this as a really important thing as much as organizing the next campaign against this or that, certainly. Until they, until they see that, uh, we're going to have immense problems getting off the ground, although I think the, the TSSI has proved what it set out to prove. You know, I didn't come up with it originally. I, I, I kind of rediscovered it as, as, as many people have done. Oh, it's, it's, it's not a personal thing, but the, the whole group of people who have been pursuing this line of thought, I think, have succeeded absolutely, 100%, in a theoretical sense. But uh, the ability to translate that into success in, in terms of winning adherence in academia or being able to affect the discussion of intellectuals, that, that, that has not carried through. And I think that reflects on how much the parties concerned care about what's correct and what's not and can care about uh, Marxist thought in the actual tradition of Marx. I, I, I don't think that there is much interest in that, even and maybe especially in the people that call themselves Marxists. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth. Son, we live in a world that has walls. Those walls have to be guarded. Who's going to do it? You. I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. We use words like honor. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. Did you order the code red? You're goddamn right I did! What are the implications of this for Marx's law, the tendential fall in the rate of profit? Well, first of all, that was another thing that was declared uh, internally inconsistent or illogical or can't be, and was not generally recognized that the reason it couldn't be supposedly was because the opponents of the law were imposing simultaneous valuation on the problem. But it does turn out that that is the entirety of what's going on. 
And when you just think about it, it's almost unbelievable that anybody could have done this. First of all, you're talking about a law that says that the rate of profit tends to fall because of technological progress. It raises productivity. When productivity rises, prices tend to fall. And it's the fall in the prices that's, you know, helping to make the, the rate of profit go down. Now, you impose simultaneous valuation on this problem, you don't have a fall in prices, not in any meaningful sense. So to think that you can theorize technological change, rising productivity, while imposing the condition that the prices of the inputs and the prices of the outputs have to be equal, it's mind-bogglingly stupid. Or else it's just a model and you're not trying to understand the reality by means of the model, which is the case with a lot of people. But second of all, Remember that the way the simultaneous valuation works is you got your 10 pounds, you, you sink it into leather, you produce, and so the 10 pounds is your investment. And the rate of profit measures your profit compared to the amount that you invested. Well, when you go and wipe out 10 pounds and revalue it at five or whatever, you're lowering the amount of investment artificially. I mean, it's not the actual amount of investment. You wipe out the amount of investment, you write down a lower number. Well, yeah, you're going to get a higher rate of return on your investment that way, a higher rate of profit. So you, in this way, you, pre you prevent the rate of profit from falling. And, and, and that's what this is all about. It's as, it's as stupid as that. So in our example before with the shoes and the leather, what difference does the value of the shoe make to the rate or the falling rate of profit? Right. Well... I mean, keep in mind what the procedure of Borkevich and his followers is. You know, when you were making the shoes and you started to use the leather, the leather was worth 20 pounds at that point. So the, the amount that somebody would need to invest at that point was 20 pounds. You'd already lost 10 pounds because you didn't uh, use the leather right away. Okay. But another producer of shoes at that moment, it would cost them uh, 20 pounds. So 20 pounds is the, the capital investment. And a rate of profit is a rate of return on that investment. In other words, a rate of profit is how much profit you're getting compared to that 20 pounds in investment. But what Borkevich and those people do is they say, oh, well, that's not relevant. You know, the price of the leather when it went into production, what we're going to do is because we want simultaneous valuation, we want mutual determination, we're just going to ignore that 20 pounds and we're going to revalue the leather at its price when the shoes are finished or even even much later, right? Whatever the, the inputs are worth currently. So at, at the end of the period, the leather is worth 10 pounds. Well, maybe the shoes sit there and they don't get sold for, for a year. And by that point, the leather's only worth seven pounds. Well, they're going to revalue the, the leather at uh, seven pounds and, and, and lower the value of the shoes accordingly. And, and that's legitimate for some purposes, but not for purposes of saying what your capital investment was. You know, the, the value of, of the leather could be anything with the fact of the matter, which never changes, is that you actually paid, you paid 30 pounds. So you're getting a very low rate of return on your investment. But somebody else who comes in, you know, and, and, and buys the leather at 20 pounds, their investment is 20 pounds. And it's 20 pounds no matter what the leather happens to be worth at any subsequent moment. And so the way you can defeat Marx's law of the initial fall and the rate of profit is you can 
you know, revalue these inputs, means of production, you know, fixed capital and all of that at subsequent prices when they're lower and so forth. There's a lot of complications about that. But basically, if you cheapen the investment artificially by not counting the actual amount of funds invested, but by some lower number that is what the inputs are worth later, you're going to boost the rate of profit. And that's really all that gets done. And that's what's done, for instance, in the Akisha theorem. What is the normal non-Marxist economist's way of measuring the rate of profit? I think, generally speaking, economists understand the, the rate of profit uh, in, in the way that I do. Now, there are statistical problems. There's a lack of data at some levels. And when people do empirical work, they basically look for the best data, the most appropriate data to their question. And when there aren't any, they use whatever data they have. Now, there is an issue of inflation, but the way theoretically correctly to adjust for inflation is not to revalue the inputs at the prices of the subsequent outputs. For the United States economy, there there are ways of if you actually want to produce an inflation-adjusted measure of the rate of profit, you, you can definitely do that without revaluing the uh, inputs at output prices. In any case, I should say that there is no such one animal as the rate of profit. The correct rate of profit to look at always depends on the specific question that you have in mind. And if you have a somewhat different question, there's a different measure you should be looking at for, for, for that purpose. You also mentioned the Akisho theorem. This was a theorem which supposedly proved that the falling rate of profit was incorrect. There has been counter proofs to this theorem, and they all depend on this same problem of simultaneous valuation. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's a really simple issue in the end. There's a lot of complexities because people try to produce counterexamples to the counterexamples. They refuse to recognize that a counterexample... It refutes a theorem and you only need one counterexample. I mean, everybody knows that, but they, they don't want to uh, allow that. So there's a lot of complexities, but basically, if you have a model in which, uh, because things are getting produced more cheaply through te technological progress, the prices or values of the inputs are continually getting cheaper, and you're continually revaluing valuing them, then that means that you're continually artificially reducing the sum of money that is invested, so to speak, when you compute your rate of profit. In fact, you're not computing a rate of return on investment, which is what a rate of profit is. But if you pretend that what you have is a rate of profit, you're just revaluing the inputs downward. So the profit is being measured against the ever smaller base. And that artificially boosts the rate of profit and overcomes what, in many cases, would be a decline in the rate of profit. So it's, it's, it's just a trick produced by this miracle of simultaneous evaluation of basically ignoring the past, of ignoring what has actually taken place. How does the empirical evidence stack up in favor of this tendential fall of rate of profit? Well, you know, the economic data we have are, are not that good. And the only real study that I put any stock in is that of my own, actually, that deals with the U.S. economy in the last period since, since World War II. And what I basically found, I mean, was really surprising to me 
that there was a real big decline in the the, ra the rate of profit in, in the in the U.S. when you, you measure it as profit compared to the actual amount of money invested. And basically, almost all of that fall on the rate of profit between, I think, 1947 and 2007, almost all of it can be attributed to what Marx's law says. Slow growth of employment relative to, to capital accumulation. I think it's something like 94% can be attributed to that over that 60-year period. That, that, that amazed me. And, you know, I checked and double-checked because you actually don't want to report results that are that good. Because nobody's going to believe them, but those are the results. The rate of profit is just for people, they went from what rate to what rate over that period of time? If you use kind of like the broadest definition of profit, kind of like what Marx was talking about when he talked about surplus value. So that surplus value includes what does not become the profit of the company, but gets paid out as interest to their creditors. That rate of profit goes from... 34% in 1947, down to the lowest point prior to the Great Recession was, uh, I think, 2001, went down to about 23%. Then you get the artificial boom because of the housing bubble. And then it goes back down, of course, in, in the recession. If you look at a much more common measure of profit before tax profit, so it's before the, the companies pay income tax, but it excludes uh, what they have to pay to the government in sales tax, which is like a value-added tax, excludes uh, the interest payments and so forth. That went down from about 22% or so in 1947 to, in 2001, it looks like it's about 7%. There are, are, are fluctuations here, here and there, so taking any one year is a bit problematic. But I look at it in various ways, and you just have to look at a graph to, to see that there's a, there's a substantial fall in both cases. What I like to do is measure the same point in the, the trade cycle. And if you measure low points, from 1949 to 2001... The rate of profit using the broader measure of profit fell by 16 percentage points, or 41%, whereas the before-tax rate of profit fell by 15.5 percentage points, almost the same, or 58%. Uh, and that, I think, is a valid comparison because they're both uh, troughs or low points in, in the cycle there. You tell lies, thinking I can see. You can't cry because you're laughing at me. I'm down. So I find after reading Marx myself that it explains a lot of the life and workings I see around me. The Conservative Party in England are currently introducing what amounts to workfare, where people are forced to work for well below the minimum wage for their benefits. 
can we expect to see more of similar type measures as the rate of profit continues to lower itself? Well, I think we're we're we're, we're going to see it whether or not we get short-term downward movements in the rate of profit or short-term upward movements in the rate of profit. There is an economic crisis, and in a sense, it's taken on a life of its own. In, until these issues are really resolved and you get a real sustainable rise in the expected rate of profit so the companies are willing to sink in money for the long term, and especially until you resolve the tremendous overhang of debt, I, I expect there's going to be economic sluggishness, you know, maybe renewed financial crises. I don't think the, the Eurozone problem is completely finished. And in this environment where things are kind of stagnant, there are going to be continuing attempts to resolve this on the backs of the working population, irrespective even of short-term movements in the rate of profit. Linked to this, when it comes to Keynesian government stimulus, can it raise the rate of profit in the economy? And if so, how does it do this if it doesn't change the organic composition of capital, i.e. the ratio of the value of machines and raw materials to the, to the labour? This is one of those issues of price and value, but in a sense of nominal price and value. The total price in money terms can grow faster and does grow faster the total price of everything produced in the society can grow faster than the amount of labor that is needed to produce those things. So in that sense, we could say that the price rises above the value. Now, that happens anyway, but the government can make it happen even more, and that boosts the rate of profit temporarily, just like it boosts the GDP temporarily and everything else temporarily. So, yeah, you can do that. But the trick is you're doing this with borrowed money, so the, the, that money needs to be paid back. Second of all, you can only do it temporarily in the sense that the moment you withdraw that extra spending by the government or the moment you withdraw the tax cuts that put more money in consumers' pockets and fund that by means of government borrowing, fund the, the deficit by means of borrowing, once you reverse that, you go back to where you were. Now, this is straightforward Keynesian economics that I'm putting forward to you right now. This is what Keynesian economics itself says. These are the implications of the Keynesian models. You reverse those stimuli, you go back to where you were. It's a reversible equilibrium situation that is modeled in, in, in Keynesian economics. Now, you might want to talk about the question of confidence and expectations and how stabilization of the economy can change that. That's, that's, that's legitimate. That's all well and good. But if you're simply looking at the effect of pumping borrowed money into the economy, the effect lasts as long as you keep doing this. And if you keep doing it, you keep raising your debt compared to, to output. You know, so the, the debt burden in important terms rises. So you can't keep doing it forever. And, and this, is, this is Keynesian economics itself that says this. So if the Keynesian stimulus can, say, for example, avert a real crisis from happening temporarily, say when the rate of profit falls to maybe 10%, at what point does it not work? Let's say the rate of profit goes to 3%. What does this mean for the size of the crisis and the value of the quality of life when we get towards these lower rates of profits? 
Right. I mean, there's obviously some lower level, and it's above zero, and it's it's hard to know. But I have some understanding of what happens when the rate of profit goes so low. First of all, there's a very close relationship between business investment and production and the rate of profit. Both the expected rate of profit, they're not going to invest if they're not expecting a high enough rate of profit in the future. And, you know, all else being equal, if your rate of profit goes down, your profit goes down. So there is less profit to invest. You're going to have sluggish investment. You're going to have sluggish hiring. You're going to have government budget problems because the tax monies aren't coming in. And unless they really impose very astringent austerity, you know, people are retiring earlier. There are unemployment benefits to be paid out and so forth and so on. That's part of it. Second of all, your companies don't all earn the the average rate of profit. So if it's 3% or whatever, if the average is 3%, you can be very certain that on the low end of the, the distribution, you got companies that are making negative profits. So the lower the average goes, that's pushing more and more businesses in, in, into bankruptcy. And the other thing is businesses are debtors. They owe money. And you have to be able to pay back your debt to stay in business. And you need those profits. You need positive profits just to pay the interest on what you owe as debt. Okay, so that's why the rate of profit can't go down to like, you know, 0.1% and we're still getting profit, so why shouldn't they still invest? No, it doesn't work like that. If they're getting 0.1% profit, their creditors have come and, and they, they've had to go, go into bankruptcy and the, the, the creditors are selling off the assets. So at some stage, then, if it gets so low, say it gets to 5%, and you can earn interest, or if you can earn on speculation, you can earn 5%. Essentially, you'd end up with some type of nearly a seizure in investment activity. So the reason I ask this is that if we look around today, we see firms in America and around the world sitting on vast hordes of cash. We've got firms like Apple. In June 2012, they had $117 billion in cash. And they have that located in their own in-house hedge funds. Is this a sign that the rate of profit is getting to the stage where the production is starting to become not worth the bother? Well, I think it reflects great uncertainty regarding the future among these businesses. Because believe me, if they thought that they could, you know, invest those funds in production and earn a decent rate of return, even a rate of return more than their getting by holding on to these funds, putting them in short-term treasury securities, even long-term treasury securities, they would do so. And interest rates you know, on securities are laughably low right now. I mean, in the United States, uh, the, the rate on a T-bill is, I, I think, 0.1% per year. All this money is sitting there being parked because at least if it's just sitting there, it's not at risk. And the risks are regarded as too great. I think that there's uh, concerns about the, the economy now being sluggish, and there's concerns about uh, the future of the economy. What we have to deal with the, at, at this point is, you know, the, the the expected rate of profit and the risks that the capitalists perceive in terms of, well, you know, it's not just the average there. Maybe maybe the average could be, you know, twelve percent, but if there's a high probability it's going to be negative. 
you know, or extremely low, then they're, they're not willing to risk that and it'd be better to park those funds in a place where at least if they're earning interest that's below the rate of inflation, uh, at least it's safe. So what type of crisis or endgame in this long sequential fall do you envisage? Let me first say economic cannot well forecast into the future. And I don't think it has anything to do with chaos theory or anything. I just think it, it doesn't yield forecasts of the future that are at all good. And it has nothing to do with a particular theory and has nothing to do with the, the virtuosity or lack thereof of this or that, that forecast. It's just built into the discipline. So why do we see so many economists forecasting and making their, 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 their business? Well, they get paid to do it. Frankly, their forecasts are better than you could do without a forecast on average, probably. So they're, they're, they're lousy, but under the circumstances, you know, lousy is, is better than nothing at all. So, so they do it. I, 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 don't, I don't think anybody can, can, can forecast even, even a year ahead. I, I certainly can't. All we can do is form educated guesses and hunches. My educated guess or hunch is that the situation that we have at present, uh, what's been called the new normal, um, will continue, and that's the best-case scenario. Sluggish economic growth, probably punctuated by financial crises like we saw in 2007-8, maybe not reaching the level of the panic in, in September, October of 2008, but uh, serious ones, and, and financial crises like we're seeing in the Eurozone, punctuating Rather sluggish growth, you know, sometimes it's better, sometimes it's weaker, until this whole problem does wind itself down. I mean, eventually, debt does get written off, or uh, it gets inflated away, or, or something like that. That's probably the best case scenario. That requires probably a bit of luck by the policymakers. That requires that they don't all start engaging in beggar thy neighbor policies, as it's called, and trying to steal growth from other countries. We're looking like we're beginning to have a mild currency war, where that's beginning to happen. The U.S., China, Japan, trying to keep the values of their currencies low, make their exports cheap, and make their economies grow that way. So you, you could get things screw up really bad because of that. But assuming that that doesn't happen and they have a bit of luck and so forth, they might be able to muddle through with slow growth for, for a long time until these issues get resolved. But things could go wrong. Uh, all kinds of things could, could trigger a very serious financial crisis. And at that, at that point, the underlying problems kind of scorpions crawl out from under rocks. And that's, that's what we saw recently. Financial crisis triggering a recession, which is not surprising, but we've had five years of sluggishness now and no real prospect of a strong rebound in sight. And that is unusual. That's the best case scenario, I think, for capitalism is, 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 is slow growth. But many, many things could affect that. You know, you look at countries like Greece and Spain and the people of this world have not had their final say, I don't think. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, Professor Kleiman. Oh, thanks very much, Tom. Glad to do it. Take my hand. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, by Sun Ra and his orchestra, 
and an excerpt from the 1937 film How Does the Differential Work, accompanied by The Hidden Door by Belbury Polly. You also heard the YouTube star Z.P. Grotel performing Exegesis, Ghost in the Machine by Protoculture, and Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise debating Truth and Responsibility, accompanied by the Joy Division's Atmosphere. The Beatles also showed their hand with I'm Down, and you are now listening to The Four Tops with Still Waters Run Deep. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.
the issue is is so stupid of you know the simultaneous valuation and also because it's not a momentous issue it's just hard for people to to believe that it matters that much 